Today's main text will be the better part of just two fairly short verses. Ephesians 1, 15 and the first part of verse 16. So Paul has just finished this hymn of praise to God. And we've been in awe. I, I hope we've been in awe at this massive display of God's glory and repeats this refrain again and again to the praise of the glory of his grace. His incomprehensible grace has been on showcase for us, his people. And he continues now in a spirit of prayer by turning to pray. Instead of praising, exclusively praising God, he prays on behalf of or intercedes for the church at Ephesus. These Christians that were in the middle of a very secular, very pagan culture, living as lights in the world. And I encourage you to follow along with me as I read Paul's entire prayer of intercession that starts in verse 15 and goes on to the end of chapter 1. This is the word of God. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ the Father of glory may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the reading of the word of God. May he give us the power and the ability to understand it and live it. John Stott, pastor and theologian, said of this next section that I just read, that Paul began with a great benediction, verses 3 through 14, and now he continues with a great intercession. Ephesians 1 is in fact divided into these two sections. He goes on and says, first, He blesses God for having blessed us in Christ. Then he prays that God will open our eyes to grasp the fullness of this blessing. What what a prayer that God would open the eyes of his church to understand all the blessings that we have received in Christ. And to some degree, this verse and a half that we're looking at this week kind of spans between these two sections. Because before Paul brings us into this prayer for the church he loves, he starts by thanking God for his work of grace in them. Today, dear brothers and sisters, we're challenged and encouraged by Paul's inspired example to similarly thank God for working in each other. To thank God, as Paul does in these verses, for his work in Steve and his work in Chris and his work in Beth and his work in Anne. And I could go around the room. That's that's what Paul is doing here. Paul is thanking God for the work of saving, for the work of sanctifying his people. I'd like everyone to do something together with me. And kids, you can even do this too. For the next minute, let's all focus on our breathing. Focus on breathing. Please don't hold your breath or stop breathing. Don't pant like a dog. I don't want anyone passing out. But start by sitting up straight. Hopefully you're already doing that, sort of. And breathing all the air out of your lungs. Just take a... Now inhale just by letting the air flow in 
Take the breath all the way from the seat of your chair to the top of your head. And I know that's not really air in there, but feel as if you're filling your whole upper body with air. Your lungs now are collecting oxygen from this air right now, adding it to your bloodstream to maintain life in all your body's cells. Now focus on breathing. If you haven't already, the air slowly back out. Do this a few more times and we'll all be sleeping, taking long, deep breaths. The reason I'm doing that, we we often don't think about breathing. It comes to most people very, very naturally. We maybe think about it when we're exercising and our breathing gets labored. We think about it when we're at higher altitudes and it's harder to get the oxygen that we need to get out of breath more quickly. But I titled our message from this text, A Faith That Breathes, because I found that this text is almost like it's, it's a very simple text, but it's almost like you can make a very simple analogy to respiration, to breathing. And because it's so familiar, I thought it was something that maybe we could hold on to because there's two main parts of breathing that we're aware of. There's other things going on behind the scenes, but there's inhaling, bringing oxygenated air in and exhaling, letting air out. And though this comes naturally to us, sadly, giving of thanks often does not. Speaking for myself, thanking God for others, for his work in others is not something I consistently, I faithfully find myself doing. But this idea of giving thanks is is universal. I mean, you look in Buddhist literature, you look in literature that atheists are putting out, They're talking about the value of giving thanks, that it does something good for yourself and it encourages others. So is that all we're talking about? Are we talking about the same thing that someone without Christ could do, just thanking someone for something? Well, aspects of it are uniquely Christian, especially the kind referred to in this text. Because remember, Paul is thanking God for his working in others' lives, the church. And I believe that as we observe God's grace at work in others, as we learn to watch for evidences of God's grace working in others' lives and recognize it for what it is, that's the breathing in part, we take in what we see as God's grace in someone's life. And then as we grow in the ability to point it out, this is the the breathing out part, I believe we'll increasingly be built up in our faith We will be encouraged as one body by other parts. We'll be increasing our breathing capacity as you exercise and work out your diaphragm and your lungs and and different parts of your breathing mechanism get stronger. And as a result, the entire body will be strengthened. This message really should be immensely simple and practical. It's my prayer that for us, this affirming spiritual work of giving thanks to God for his work in the church will become more frequent here at Grace and Truth and supernaturally will become almost as commonplace and natural as breathing. Let's dive into the text together. First, a question. What is Paul identifying in verse 15 as the thing that prompts this thanksgiving? What provokes Paul to give thanks? Another way to ask this, what is the reason for this unstoppable thanksgiving to God described in verse 16? Well, we see that Paul first starts with a phrase, for this reason. This is even more direct than a therefore that we often look for in especially New Testament epistles, when we see therefore, we look back to see what it's there for. This is even more direct than that. He's saying everything I've just been talking about, for this reason, I'm going to tell you a follow-up. And this is Paul beginning, and this is the first point if you're taking notes, taking in evidences of God's grace. Taking in, this is the inhaling part, taking in evidences of God's grace. And there's two broad categories of God's grace that Paul is drawing on here in verse 15. The first one, for this reason, I believe he's pointing back to everything 
that he's just said, these lofty truths we've been studying these past weeks. So the first broad category is God's eternal plan of redemption for the capital C church generally, for the universal church, God's eternal plan of redemption to redeem a people through his son, Jesus Christ. And Paul is saying, for this reason, well, which part of the verses leading up to this should we be looking at? Is it the work of the Spirit that seals Jews and non-Jews as a reminder they are God's precious possession? Is it God's plan to unite all of his people in Christ, the one who purchased by his blood? Or maybe it's the fact that we were predestined to be ex-orphans adopted by our loving Father. Is it the choosing of us in him before we were a twinkle in our great-great-grandparents' eye, even before creation itself, of no work on our own but by his grace? On which work of redeeming grace are we to look at as the basis for Paul's prayer of thanks? I hope it's obvious. Yes, yes, and yes. All of it. All of the preceding section, it seems like Paul is referring to as the foundation, the reason for giving thanks. Our God who redeems only because of his sovereign and loving choice is sufficient motivation for us to give all of our song, all of our prayers, all of our words of thanksgiving back to him. And I pray we never forget that, that we remind each other of that, whether it's in this season of Thanksgiving or every other time as well. So there's a second category of grace, though, that I think Paul is also pointing to. There's the broad category, God's eternal plan of redemption from eternity past for the church universal. But then there's this one local church's faith and love. Specifically. And we see that as you continue on in verse 15, he says, for this reason, which I believe is pointing backwards to the prior verses. But he also gives another reason, because I have heard. So he was listening to reports of this church at Ephesus. I have heard of two things, your faith in the Lord Jesus. And your love toward all the saints. There are two things Paul had heard about specifically lived out in the lives of the Ephesian believers. And these were evidences of God's continued grace in that church. You see, it had probably been some years. We don't know exactly how long, but some length of time had passed since he had been in Ephesus. He had spent three years there while planting a church planting the church in Acts 19 and 20. So he probably would have personally known many of the Ephesian believers, having first told them of Christ. But others, he probably wouldn't have had a face to go with. He'd hear a message back that someone had confessed faith in Christ, that their family had all abandoned them. But he had stood strong in the faith and had a love for the body. He would hear these kind of messages back and it was building up a picture in his mind of what God was doing in this church. He would have personally known some of the believers also because his last meeting with the elders of this church is recorded in Acts chapter 20. This is before he went to Jerusalem, ultimately to Rome, where he later would die. But he gave this speech And I think today's context makes this speech all the more meaningful to us, having also his letter to the Ephesian church. This is what he told the elders earlier of that same church. Acts 20, 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Paul continues and says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Now, as he's wrapping up, he says, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace 
which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. He commended this church and its leadership to God and his work. And now he was starting to get word back, or he had been perhaps for some time that God's work was continuing there. Just as he had hoped and just as he had prayed. And it was evidencing itself in a people marked by faith and by love. Paul didn't even see these things firsthand, but hearing them, he believed this report, this good report of the church, and thanked God for it. Sometimes we use a phrase that may be unfamiliar to some, observing evidences of grace. This is when we recognize areas of growth in the life of another believer, knowing that this can only be attributed to God's work of grace in their lives. And really, it only comes full circle when we point that out for God's glory. When we see God has been working in your life in this way, God has given you faith to continue in the middle of some very difficult circumstances. Let's praise him for that. This is, this is observing evidences of grace. Now, this doesn't mean human effort wasn't involved, that more growth isn't needed, that we overlook sin in pointing out these evidences of grace and just address the positive. But Paul wisely begins his message to this Ephesian church by recognizing the good that God is doing. Because more of the book is later going to address where they still need growth, where more work is needed. Even this prayer continues with ongoing growth requested, that they have more knowledge to understand. But he starts by recognizing where God's grace is evident in their lives. A question worth asking ourselves today, something I struggled with this week in the study and in my prayer, am I more likely to see areas I see that someone still needs to change or to see evidences that God is working in their life? Ask that of yourself. I'll read it again. Am I more likely to see areas I see that someone still needs to change or am I likely to see evidences that God is working in their life? I don't want to make a dichotomy out of that, that you can't do both. But I feel like so often our bent is to look, to notice things that need changing and not where God's work is already evident. Do you see yourself as someone whose primary role is one of correcting? So you look to identify what you see as wrong in someone else, to point it out, instead of looking for and recognizing the good that God has already done. I encourage you to spend time actively looking for evidences of God's work in fellow believers. I'm sure you'll find them. Don't, don't fall into the trap of being cynical when you see encouraging progress in someone's life. This trap of being cynical and you start to question, yeah, that's not going to last. I've seen them go through that before. They said they read their Bible every day this week. Well, that probably happened before, too. We can get cynical about growth in others' lives. Instead, why don't we see that as an opportunity to thank God for his work of grace in their life? Also, don't be skeptical when you hear about someone changing or growing, but say, I'll believe it when I see it. Yeah, yeah. We all have this inner skeptic in us that will not believe something good until we see it for ourselves, perhaps. Recognize even the first sprouts when God has that seed start to sprout forth in someone's life. He is at work in lives, especially growing us in some of these key areas seen in the text. There are two given, faith and love. Faith, Brian Chapel referred to this as relying on God's glory and living for his glory in the midst of a sinful and self-serving culture, relying on and living for God's glory in the middle of a sinful and self-serving culture. Some translations use the words strong faith. I've heard of your strong faith, and all of them point to the faith, the object of that faith, faith in the Lord Jesus. 
This is opposed to broader terms that sometimes we hear today. This is a person of faith, just kind of a nebulous term. This is a person of faith. Maybe it means they have strong convictions. Maybe it means they believe in something. Or maybe we say they're a spiritual person. No, this is much more specific. Paul heard that these people had a strong faith in the Lord Jesus. These believers were followers of their Savior who had died and was raised for them. For Paul's audience, this would have been people in the middle of a pagan and affluent culture who were continuing to look to God and look to their Savior on a daily basis. This isn't someone who never struggles, never has a doubt, but one who in the middle of those keeps clinging and holding on to their Savior No matter what the trial or persecution or attack from the enemy, this is a strong and persevering trust of God in all areas of life. And this was such a strong evidence of God's work that news of this faith traveled all the way from Ephesus to Rome and now in this letter back again to the church at Ephesus. Other Christians carrying word that these believers had a faith from God. What are some ways that our faith can be evidence for the body that God is doing a work? What are things we can point to in others' lives, even in this room, and say, I see that God is doing a work of faith in you? Maybe it's increasing our reliance on him alone for our standing before God. Maybe you see in someone breaking out of the need to try to perform in front of people to feel like that improves their standing before God. Maybe for some it's dealing with the struggles of life and you see that through the struggles they're continuing to look to their Savior. You can point to that and you can see that is a strong faith in our Savior that I thank God for. And the other, love. The passage mentions love toward all the saints. This is a purposeful and volitional love to the entire body of Christ. That's the key part, isn't it? It's easy for us. We've talked about this here before. It's easier for us to love perhaps people like us, people with similar personalities or interests or affinities that we normally go together But it's much more challenging to love someone very different from me. Maybe they were raised differently. Maybe they have different economic or family situation. But to see that in a church, people are saying, this church has a love for all the saints. The Greek word agape is used here in Ephesians more than anywhere else in Paul's letters other than 1 Corinthians. So 1 Corinthians has that whole chapter of 13, the love chapter, and it's a longer book. But other than 1 Corinthians, Ephesians, Paul is continually pointing out this selfless agape is the Greek word love. This shows us that Paul's letter that really focuses on the church and their unity must include this crucial element of love for the saints. Now, this love wasn't confined just to their immediate circles. Draws our attention back to this natural division that we saw, I believe it was last week, between the Jew and the non-Jew. In that culture, that was huge. That there were now non-Jewish people being baptized into their church. These were people that normally would not have gone together. They would not have hung out together. But through the work of Christ, these Different people were brought together in love into a single body. What are our divisions today? What are the things that do not go together in 21st century American culture? Could they be some of the things I mentioned earlier? Age. We tend to kind of group, clump around people our age. A little uncomfortable to spend a lot of time or close to people that are maybe a lot older, a lot younger than us. 
family structure? Do couples tend to hang out with other couples and singles perhaps with other singles? Nothing wrong with that, but just noticing some of these affinities. And to see in the church this being broken down and a love being broadly displayed. Others, socioeconomic. And then the big one, denominational. I read somewhere there are 38,000 denominations in the Christian church today. 38,000. That's not people, that's denominations. Different types of church. And not saying necessarily that everyone who believes anything should all worship together, but many of us will be someday. As we worship before the throne, how many of these different denominations will be represented? And where there's lack of love in our hearts, lack of a purposeful, volitional love for the body, may the Spirit root that out and draw us to love other believers more. What could you do this week to grow your love for all the saints? Not what could you do this week to grow your love for your best friends or the people you hang out with anyway. What could you do this week to grow your love for all the saints, to broaden it? Could be simple things like who you talk to before and after church. Could be stuff like who you spend time with during the week over meals. John 13, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. How supernaturally different is this love when it's on display? All people will know the disciples of Christ by the love they have for each other. Or Romans 12, verse 10. Paul says to those believers, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. This isn't a mushy, gushy, you know, blush love. This is a brotherly affection, sincerely desiring the good of each other and doing what is in our power to accomplish that for them. This doesn't rule out, of course, the love we should be having for non-Christians. This isn't saying love only believers. Even our enemies are to be recipients of our love. We saw that in the Sermon on the Mount. But this passage is referring specifically to this church and the love they had for the brethren, to other believers. Another scripture will point out this is foundational to our love for the world. This is foundational, the supernatural nature of it, of loving different people that aren't like us, is a key aspect of our witness to this unbelieving world around us. So let us, brothers and sisters, be the kind of church that others would see and say, I've seen their faith and their love, and I thank God for it. What are some applications, even from these two truths that we just looked at, or these two marks of this church in Ephesus? How can we be a more loving church? A few that came to my mind, and the Lord may be bringing others to your mind. We pray that God would grow us as a church in community with each other in a way that doesn't result in cliquishness. Because that's, I think, a common outcome of getting to know some people better than others, is that you then hang out with those people. And perhaps that could cause you to build up walls from other parts of the body. May it not be so here. May we grow in community with perhaps our community group more so, but with the body at large as well. Also, I see this perhaps being applied by a strength and firmness in our faith, that we are rock solid on what we believe in a way that doesn't become exclusionary. Like, I believe this so you can't be my friend or we can't spend time together that can make us provincial in our faith to see this is what I believe and you believe differently. So we can't be together. We can't talk. We can't discourse over these things. May God grow the firmness of our own faith, but also grow our love, our charity for those who may believe differently. And where we struggle to love other believers, because 
there will be people, I'm sure you're probably thinking of them in your head right now, that are hard for you to love. People within the body of Christ. Maybe they're part of this church. Maybe they're part of another church. People that you just feel I cannot get along with and I do not love them. When that's the case, we need to return to Christ. The source of how we know love is the one who loved us first. Our faith in him and our looking to him is what's going to enable us to love others in Christ's body that are difficult to love, perhaps unlovely to us. Because what binds us together is so much greater than the little things that tend to tear us apart. What binds us, the cords of love which with we've been drawn by Christ. First John 4 just explodes with this truth in my mind. First John 4, starting in verse 7 through the verse 12. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, in this act was the love of God made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And in this is love. Not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation the wrath-absorbing sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. This is the motivation, the grounds for our love of each other. And I would say that where we struggle in loving another believer, we do not yet understand or appreciate that love that was extended to us as God's enemies. That brought us into his household. That he called us his sons. And I won't read the text, but another place for you to look at. Of God. Through Christ working his love in his people is John 17 and that high priestly prayer. Jesus prayed for us. For you. Believer today. Sitting here in grace and truth, hearing his word. Jesus prayed for you that you would be perfectly one with the body. Isn't that amazing? Jesus prayed for you specifically. He didn't even just say generally. He said, I don't ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That they may all be one. And he points to the the unity within the Trinity as the basis for us as a body as a church, local, being one with each other. And I think it would be wrong of me to move from this without saying, in Scripture we see that this is even a litmus test or an acid test for someone's conversion. According to 1 John 3, all Christians should be showing this love for other Christians as a mark that they are truly God's children. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. The Christian graces on display evidence God's work of redemption in a life. And after Paul's example, we believers should be watching each other, not for slip-ups, Not for when someone fails, but for signs that God is at work doing this in our lives. That he is growing our faith. That he is growing our love. That he is growing our hope. This is the third one that's often in the New Testament, part of this Christian trilogy of sorts. But with these three all present and in balance, we see God doing a work in us. So at this point, we've taken the breath in. We've seen the evidences of God's grace in the life of fellow believers. But let's not stop there. Paul did not stop there. Paul moves quickly to action after recognizing God's grace. 
So my second point is breathing out thanks to God for his work. When Paul heard of the Ephesian believers' faith and love, he didn't keep this to himself. For someone who knew so much about the struggles of various churches, Paul sure was thankful for them. Can you imagine what Paul must have seen working in planting all these various churches, the different kinds of people, the different struggles that they would have faced? But yet when you look at his letters to those churches, he is so thankful to God for what he has done. Let's look at a few of them. Romans 1 verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. So he thanks God for their visible faith. First Corinthians 1 verse 4. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. So he thanks God for the Corinthian church's grace that God had given them. Philippians 1 verses 3 and 4. He thanks God for the Philippian church. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of you, in every prayer of mine for you, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Philemon 1 verses 4 and 5, he affirms this brother by thanking God for his love and faith. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. Colossians 1, verses 3 and 4, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Does this start to sound repetitive? In so many of Paul's letters, he is thanking God. In fact, the letter to the Galatian church is the only one that does not include this type of note of thanks to God for his work. First Thessalonians 1. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Second Thessalonians 1. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. And then here in Ephesians, we're already looking. Paul giving thanks to God for their faith and for their love. As I said, Paul would have seen a lot of difficulties in those churches, would have seen a lot of sin, I'm sure, and he does point that out in his letters to those churches. But he starts by affirming, by pointing out and giving thanks to God for them. There are some things we never do, some things we do occasionally, and others that we want to always keep doing without ever stopping. And Paul puts this in his always list. I do not cease to give thanks for you. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. That kind of ongoing commitment takes discipline. This isn't a flash in the pan, overnight decision to do something where Paul felt obligated to commit but didn't follow through. This is Paul saying, this is really important to me. I know you fellow believers. I've seen God's work in your life and I thank God for it. This is a work of spiritual support. And the primary importance of it for Paul is on display for us today. And the work that it accomplished in the body of Christ I believe was part of the motivation. Paul was thankful because it was God's work. This wasn't something these churches had had done on their own with their own strength and pulling themselves up by their bootstraps. No, this was God's work and he wanted to praise him for it. But I would say that we also need this kind of support ourselves. We need people seeing and identifying evidences of God's grace that we may be blind to in our lives. So let's pray that God gives us the ability to follow this spirit-inspired example of Paul by regularly praying, thanking God for the saints. So here I'd like to make an application, and maybe this, is, maybe this is an obvious application. Maybe it's one you already do in practice. 
But if you're not already, I urge you to start praying regularly for the rest of the body. And to do this in some sort of a systematic way. One way you may be able to do this is make a list of people you see every week in your community group. Make a list of the members of your community group and start daily praying through one or two people in that list. And maybe you're already praying for your community group. And then I would encourage you to maybe go a little bit broader. Download a copy of the church directory from the city and go through family by family or even name by name and pray for a few people in the body each day. That might sound really hard. You might say, I don't know some of these people. What happens when I get to a name and I don't know that person? Well, if you don't know them, let this be an opportunity to meet them. Their phone number's right there. Their email's there. You could get together for coffee to get to know them better so you could know how to specifically pray. But even if you don't get to know them right away, there are general ways you can pray for others in the body. But especially if you know them, start looking for evidences that God is working in their life and thank God for it. Look for something you've seen from them recently in that man or woman's life and thank God for it. Be as specific as you can, thinking of ways that you've seen God work, seeing them respond to a difficult situation, seeing how they live out their faith in the home or in the workplace, how they love their family, how they love their brothers and sisters in Christ, and thank God for them specifically and regularly. You may not know other prayer requests, but those are some things you might be able to pray for anybody. And even just ask yourself, how would I want someone to pray for me that didn't know me personally? What are some things that I need prayer for? And pray those for others in the body. And actually we'll see examples in coming weeks of some of these things that Paul prays for the Ephesian church. We can add some of those to our prayer requests for the body. But how else are we going to grow in unity with one another? How else are we going to really be hand-in-hand, linked together as a body if we're not lifting each other up before the throne of grace, getting to know each other if we don't, and praying for each other's needs? Paul does one more thing, though, and unless we're looking for it, we might not have seen it. Verse 16 says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So this might seem like a private thing that Paul did. So you may be thinking, okay, I will thank God for evidences of grace in Tim's life and in Stephen's life. And and you might start doing that. But the thing we should notice is this is a very public thing for Paul. He put it in a letter that he was thanking God, that he wasn't ceasing to thank God for them. And I think there is a key aspect of this spiritual support that Paul is referring to that is to point out those evidences of grace when you see him in someone. Paul gives an example of this type of affirmation by putting his words in a letter, sending it to the church. And it's fairly general, probably because he didn't know perhaps everyone in that body. But they knew from this letter how Paul was thanking God for them, how Paul was praying for them. Much of the rest of the book would be Paul's instructions of ways to grow their love, to develop greater unity in the body. But here he commends and here he affirms. This church wasn't perfect, but God's working in them was worth pointing out. Let that be true of us as well. Let's take time to affirm God's work in each other. Verbally and when possible, specifically. And here we're at the end and you might be thinking, I can't point out small areas of growth in someone's life. Because I see how much farther they have to go. I mean, yeah, I see a little bit of progress, but it's, I, I don't want to discourage them from making more progress, perhaps, might be in your, in your thinking. Well, I have two answers to this. The first one is biblical. Philippians 1. Verse 6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to the completion at the day of Jesus Christ. 
This is God's work. This is God's work of grace in someone's life. Also, 1 Thessalonians 5. May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Our sure confidence of someone's continued growth isn't in us. It's not in us and whether we push them or prod them hard enough. And our confidence of someone's growth isn't in them exclusively either, but in the God who has promised to bring his work to completion. But I think there's a practical example too that I also want to add because many in here would understand this illustration of weight loss. I'm going to avoid looking at anyone because this is dangerous territory, but especially adults over 30 can probably relate to having at some point in your life working hard through diet, through exercise, maybe after having a child to take off some pounds. So maybe just for example, say you've worked hard for two months to lose weight. I mean, you're exercising every day. You're counting calories and you lose five pounds and someone notices. And they let you know you look good. Is your first response going to be to go out and buy a half gallon of ice cream and be like, yep, made the first five pounds. This is awesome. No, I I doubt it. At least this is going to be encouragement. This is going to be motivation for you to keep going because perhaps your goal is more than five pounds you'll want to lose more because of the encouragement and that someone noticed this happening in your life. I think there's a, a little bit of a you know, difference, obviously, because weight loss is a lot of our effort. But similarly, in the spiritual life, to maintain the discipline of growth and godliness, to continue looking to our Savior for his ongoing work in our lives, we benefit from encouragement. We benefit from people noticing those small baby steps of faith. And it can provide a context and a framework for ongoing prayer, ongoing encouragement and instruction, like the rest of Paul's letter. Paul doesn't give this this thanks, this commendation in isolation. He gives it in the context of a letter in which he also has instruction and rebuke. I've heard before a good rule of thumb is for every correction you have to give someone, you should probably give them about three affirmations, three encouragements, three things. And not that you're just making up stuff so you can, you know, really nail them with a rebuke, but recognizing truly works of God's grace in their life. And in this vein, I'd highly recommend a a book written by Sam Crabtree. Practicing affirmation. I don't have a physical copy of it, otherwise I'd hold it up, but I have it in an ebook. It is outstanding on the work of God in affirming other people. So his subtitle in Practicing Affirmation is God Centered Affirmation of Those Who Are Not God. So we recognize that fellow believers are not themselves God, but we can praise God for them. We can thank God for his work in their lives, and that's what I believe Paul is practicing, is doing today. I'm so thankful for ways that God has worked here at Grace and Truth. And running out of time, so I won't go into deep detail, but God has truly blessed this church with you the body. I'm thankful for God bringing men to this church that are gifted and eager to preach the word. I'm thankful to God for dedicated and loving teachers for our kids' classes, working hard every week to bring the word of God to my children and yours. I'm thankful for men and women eager to serve each other in so many ways, the music team, providing meals when someone's sick or has a baby, 
people working with the youth. These are all evidences of God's grace in your lives, grace and truth. Evidences that he is working in you. And in a way I need to do more often, I thank God for that. God has been good to us, his church. Not that there's not areas we still need to grow and keep working. Not that there aren't times when we run out of nursery workers or some other ministry. But God is at work in you, making you love the body more, growing your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I thank him for that. So I don't know exactly how God, by his spirit, is applying the word. But one way we can put feet to today's message is I encourage everyone to choose one brother or sister this week to thank God for. And I encourage you to do this in your prayer. Spend some time this week praying for this person, but also pray thanking God for his work in this person. Then I encourage you to tell this person sometime this week that you're thankful for them and tell them why. This could be a spouse if you don't already do this regularly. This could be one of your children or a parent, a fellow believer in this body. This isn't just for certain people. Everyone needs recognitions that God is doing his work in their lives, recognitions that God's grace is still at work in us. So I encourage you to just take one person this week and do this. May God be glorified as he continues his work in us. Father, will you continue the work that you began, the work of your son on the cross? I pray that you will. I pray that you would continue your work in us and show us in Lord, simple and tangible ways how we can live out what Paul exemplified in the word this week. That we would live out thankful hearts for your work in each other. That we would have eyes to see where faith and growing love are on display. We need you meeting us where we're at today, Father. I pray that you would show us areas of victory that we can rejoice with our brothers and sisters in. That you would help us to see when someone is struggling with a disappointment or a hurt. And that we can see your evidences of grace there as well. Father, show us your mercy today applied for us freely when your son died for sinners. And be with us now, Father, as we, in just a few minutes, gather around this table to take of the the bread and the juice, remembering your broken body and your shed blood for us. I pray that you would meet with us in unity and receive glory for it. In Jesus' name we ask, amen.